Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. I.M. Pei's majestic East Building opened in June of 1978 with the express purpose of providing space for both the National Gallery's rapidly expanding collection of modern art and as a venue for special exhibitions. The East Building has since hosted close to 250 exhibitions of artistic masterpieces from around the world. From the opening exhibition, The Splendor of Dresden, Five Centuries of Art Collecting, through the four floors devoted to Rodin Rediscovered, from the Treasure Houses of Britain to circa 1492, Art in the Age of Exploration, from Art Nouveau, 1890 to 1914, to Deceptions and Illusions, Five Centuries of Trompe l'Oeil Painting, these memorable exhibitions have left an indelible mark on the cultural life of the nation's capital. This lecture, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the East Building of the National Gallery of Art, presented by Eric Dinker, Senior Lecturer, National Gallery of Art, on August 12, 2018, describes some of the most significant East Building shows in the context of the gallery's ongoing exhibition program. Good afternoon and welcome to the East Building of the National Gallery of Art. I'm Eric Baker with the staff of the Education Division. And this is the fourth in a series of six lectures that are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the East Building. The East Building opened to the public on June 1st of 1978. And uh, I thought I might give you a little context for 1978 before we begin to discuss the individual exhibitions that I've picked out. The major news stories for 1978 included the space invader craze for computer video games. It included three separate popes, Pope Paul VI, who passed away, and then Pope John Paul I, who died unexpectedly after 34 days in office, and then he was succeeded by John Paul II. The framework for peace in the Middle East was signed by Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Premier of Israel Menachem Begin. The first test tube baby was born. The Susan B. Anthony dollar was minted. The first ever cellular mobile phone was introduced in Illinois. And Sweden was the first country in the world to recognize the effect of aerosol on the ozone layer and banning the sale. What are some of the costs of living in 1978? The yearly inflation rate was about 7.5%. At the year end, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was 800. <laughs> Interest rates at the Federal Reserve were 11 and 3 quarters percent. And the average cost of a new house was about $55,000, but the average income was about $17,000. Or if you were paying rent, the average rent was $260 a month. The cost of a gallon of gas, 63 cents. A dozen eggs, 48 cents. And your eight-track player would have cost about $170. This was before cassettes, before CDs, before streaming. It was the eight-track cassette. Even a postage stamp cost but 13 cents for the first half of the year. In sports, Dallas won the Super Bowl, the Yankees won the World Series, and this will date our lecture. 
The Washington Bullets won the championship 40 years ago, the last time. And Martina Navratilova won at Wimbledon along with John Borg, and the Kentucky Derby champion was affirmed. In popular culture, if you were going to the movies, you would have seen The Deer Hunter, or Midnight Express, or Coming Home, or perhaps Animal House. The Academy for Award for the Best Picture was for Annie Hall, which beat out Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. None of those grossed a good deal of money. Grease was the biggest grossing film of the year ahead of Superman. And the record of the year was the Eagles Hotel California. Oh no. Around April of 1978, I was sitting in Dr. Arthur Wheelock's course on Dutch and Flemish prints and drawings at the University of Maryland in graduate school. He came in and mentioned that the National Gallery had some summer jobs. Just a couple of months. And that was now 40 years and 8,000 gallery talks later. So I offer this list of the greatest hits today. But first, in one last introductory remark, why was the East Building created? We don't seize on this often enough. We needed space. And we needed space for 20th century art. We needed space for the library, which had way outgrown this original space. We needed space for the Center for Advanced Study. And most of all, we needed space for special exhibitions. Some of you had the opportunity a few weeks ago, or perhaps even last year, to hear Mark Lighthouser talk to you about installation and design. And he showed you what was behind the scenes. I'm more of a front person after the exhibition is done, how to interpret it for the public. So the task was to pick out a dozen special exhibitions, or as Mark would say, they're all special exhibitions. There were 200, to my count, 249 exhibitions just in the East Building over the last 40 years. That doesn't count all of those that were in the Mellon galleries or in the West Building. And so it's not easy to choose the greatest hits, the top 10, the dozen, the baker's dozen. Finally, I arrived at 16. Let's call it a danker's dozen. <laughs> Only two that I picked were from the same year. And these are not done by consensus. These are my choices. And frankly, I did talk tours of all of them but two. Let me read you a list of 20 exhibitions that many of you may recall fondly. Post-Impressionism, cross-currents in European and American painting. El Greco, The Folding Screen, The Age of Suleiman the Magnificent, The Burler and Annenberg Collections, The Sculpture of Indonesia, Winslow Homer, Klaus Oldenburg, Splendors of Imperial China, Treasures from the National Palace Museum in Taipei, or a Sculpture of Anger in Ancient Cambodia, Edo, Art in Japan, 1615 to 1868. Mark Rothko, The Golden Age of Chinese Archaeology, Celebrated Discoveries from the People's Republic of China, Treasures of Ancient Egypt, Dan Flavin, 
ancient Mayan art, Henri Rousseau, Pompeii and the Roman villa, Joan Miro, The Ladder of Escape. I listed 20. None of them made the cut. None. And think about how important and significant all of those exhibitions were. And so instead, we'll start, and I will go chronologically, only two show up in the same year. So we start with The Splendor of Dresden, Five Centuries of Art Collecting, an exhibition from the German Democratic Republic. It was one of the opening exhibitions. It was the largest of the six exhibitions, celebrating the opening of the new East Building. The other exhibitions included Piranese, Early Architectural Fantasies, American Art at Mid-Century, The Subjects of the Artists, Master Drawings, Aspects of 20th Century Art, and French Paintings from the collection of Elsa Mellon Bruce. And I'll be talking about that exhibition in two weeks' time. Included in the splendor of Dresden were more than 700 paintings, drawings, prints, porcelains, scientific instruments, arms and armor, bronzes, and jeweled objects. The selection from eight museums of the state art collections of Dresden was intended to document the history of art collecting by the rulers of Saxony over a period of a half a millennium, over a 500 year period. And the National Gallery's installation comprised 24 separate galleries, recreating the ambiance of the original Dresden settings of particular note, the 16th century Kunstkammer, and an exact copy of part of the installation in the Green Vault. And some 620,000 people came to see the exhibition over a period of three months. It opened, as you can see here, it opened out just outside of the auditorium doors. And what you can see here is that there was a desk over here. That was my summer employment, selling postcards and giving out the acoustic guide. And then you went down the steps into the area of the concourse, and it was the first use of that very flexible space. Outside, we had arranged the life-size tournament armor from the 1550s, although some of the material on the horses and the trappings and shields are more modern. But this introduced people who came in, came down the stairs, and could see that there was something important going on downstairs. What else was included here? Well, because of its importance, there were a number of paintings by Bernardo Bellotto called Canaletto in the North, after his uncle. And these were paintings of Dresden. There were also drawings and prints that helped after World War II to rebuild the city because of their astounding accuracy. This is a view from 1747 of Dresden from the right bank of the Elba. And I should mention that I recall fondly, this was one of the two shows I did not have the opportunity to do tours for, but I recall fondly listening to one of the other lecturers who mentioned that this tower was not complete at the time, but Bellotto knew the architectural drawings and so he completed it in the painting. There was a Kunstkammer, a room of marvels that included 
coral that included exotic minerals, that included paintings and scientific instruments, and this is the recreation. There were rooms of armor, because the armory in Dresden is one of the most complete in uh, all of Europe. And there were paintings as well. And so we have these two paintings by Lucas Cranach the Elder. This was originally a single canvas with the double portrait and was divided into two parts and transferred to wood. And we know that Cranach, following his visit to the Netherlands in 1508, experimented with Italian and Netherlandish ideas of spatial construction with monumental nudes as well, but his talent clearly was elsewhere, as shown in the splendid full-length portraits of Duke Henry the Pious and Duchess Katharina von Mecklenburg, and this marked the beginning of his official portrait style. Likewise, in the area devoted to 17th century Dutch art, the Vermeer girl at a window reading a letter, and it was actually acquired early on by August the third, the Elector of Saxony, along with a number of other paintings that were bought in Paris. It has an interesting history. It's come back to the National Gallery in the meantime. It was not a primary of primary interest in the selection of paintings that the Elector bought. The picture seller threw it in as a present just to sweeten the deal. At the time, it was attributed to Rembrandt and then eventually called Manor of Rembrandt and School of Rembrandt before in the 19th century it was recognized for the Vermeer masterpiece that you see here today. And there weren't only old master paintings in the exhibition. The exhibition included a number of works by the great German Romantic artist Caspar David Friedrich, including this very powerful work of Dolmens in the snow of 1807. And Dolmens, the burial sites, ancient burial sites in Germany, and this wintry seed with these craggy oaks around the Dolmens make it a very visceral work. The next show to mention was the art of the Pacific Islands. This followed in 1979. And included in this exhibition were 400 figures and masks, canoe ornaments and shields, weapons, ceremonial implements and shell ornaments, and feather capes. As you can see here in this installation, those capes came from Hawaii, Polynesia, Micronesia, New Guinea, and other, uh, many other places. And selections were actually made from 83 lenders around the world. And so what you see here are a set of Hawaiian feathered cloaks. To give you some idea of scale as you look at them, they are anywhere from 94 to 110 inches wide. And they are among the most delicate of works that we've ever shown here in the National Gallery. In this show, you also would have seen the vertical funerary canal prows that had been done by New Britain craftsmen. You would have seen works from Papua New Guinea, including this very striking skull holder that meant to have skulls on either side here, a skull rack. And this small Easter Island figure that came down to us from the Peabody Museum. 
So you can see that we're going far abroad, that we're not simply showing American art, we're not simply showing European art, but that we are constantly looking for great art from every continent, in fact. Rodin Rediscovered was the only show that we've ever done that used all four levels of the East Building. It was an exhibition of 366 works that came from 40 American and European collections, both public and private. The exhibition recreated on the upper level a typical Paris salon from the 1870s. It continued down through the building with nine other sections devoted to different themes of Rodin's work continuing all the way down on this level, on the concourse level, with a newly bronze cast eight-ton Gates of Hell. And it was the largest exhibition ever devoted to Rodin. We're looking over the shoulder of the bronze Balzac up at the exhibition entrance up on the upper level bridge. Here's a larger shot. And you can see the sculpture spread out through the building. And Probably no other single exhibition has utilized the dramatic spaces in the East Building as well. So the very first room, and you can see that movable skylight that is in the upper level galleries back at the beginning of the East Building, you can see a number of works scattered around the room that replicates the look of the salons, the sculpture salons in Paris in the 1870s. And right there in the center is an important work, academic work, it's called the Gloria Victus. And the Gloria Victus uh, was in fact by Marius Jean Antoine Mercier. And it was perhaps the most single, most important academic work and patriotic work to be put in the sculpture salon after the Franco-Prussian War. Many times, having exhibitions leads us to reevaluate, to consider the importance of different works. And so only consequent to this exhibition were we able to acquire a smaller cast of the same statue. So I'm showing you the one that stands outside over on the right, but the one that's on the left is on display now in the West Building on the ground floor. And it is an important counterpoint to what Rodin was trying to do at that same moment. Represented by, and I'm showing you the one from the Rodin Museum here in Paris, the Balzac, this visionary image of the overwhelmingly important 19th century French realist writer, Balzac. As you went through the building, and I would remind you that when I first began, between April 1st and Labor Day, we were open, in fact, till nine o'clock every evening. And then we were open till 7.30, and then we were open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then Sundays till nine, and then it was shortened to 10 weeks as time has gone by. But you could be here in the evening and get this very dramatic lighting as well as during the day if you came, for instance, early on in the run of the exhibition. Something we have never done before or after, we used the circular stairs at the end of the ground floor to open up and have, you can just make out, 
there were two circular staircases on either side of the room, and this allowed for up here, there was actually a balcony. And so when you got through this section of the Rodin show, you could stop and look down on the gates of hell at the eye level with not only the uh, three fates up here, but with the thinker. So you could examine the top, even though you were a little distance away, as well as the lower portions. And remember the kiss actually came from here, the hand of God over here. This had been cast specifically in favor of the exhibition at that moment. And finally, there was a section brilliantly arranged. There was a section of Rodin's influence on the artists that came after, including Brancusi, for instance. So that here, the male torso that Brancusi did in 1917 could show you some of the effects of the innovations that Rodin had begun starting in the 1870s and 1880s. If the Rodin exhibition used the building better than perhaps any other, it is the treasure houses of Britain that showed how flexible the building could be. And again, if you saw Mark Lighthouser's discussion of the armatures that needed to go in to the architecture that needed to go in, the revision of the architecture, you would have had a good idea. But he was more interested in the installation. I want to talk to you more about the work. So treasure houses of Britain which attracted just under a million people during its almost uh, six month run, uh, was about 500 years of private patronage and art collecting in Britain. It was on the upper level and mezzanine of the East Building. There were more than 700 objects that were from more than 200 country houses in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. There were 17 period rooms that were constructed to display the objects, and it was the largest and most complicated exhibition that had been undertaken to that date at the National Gallery. There were a number of outside advisors, including Gervaise Jackson Stops, who was the architectural advisor to the National Trust in Great Britain, chosen paintings, sculpture, decorative arts, furniture, uh, tapestries, jewelry, armor, silver, and many other types of objects. And so rooms were constructed that showed off the British taste for 17th and 18th century art in Britain and abroad. The taste for Italy in one room and here we have not only furniture, but images by Canaletto and Pompeo Battone and others, and not just of Italy, because if you look to the left of the doorway, you'll find this large Canaletto that is in fact of the Thames and the city of London from Richmond. The British liked Canaletto so much that they weren't content simply to buy paintings, but to import him as well to work in England for a period of almost a decade. The recreation of the sculpture gallery that you see here on the left. And what you see in the distance is this painting. And you can see that it's this painting that inspired the way in which this was shown in the National Gallery. So what is this painting? It's actually uh, by Johann Zaffany, and it's of Charles Townley and, and uh, other collectors. Antiquity had become a great theme 
in British painting in the latter part of the 18th century, and its influence can be traced in literature and in the excavation of ancient sites in Pompeii and Herculaneum. Those sites attracted the British travelers on the Grand Tour, and there was a fever for collecting that developed dominating elegant taste in Europe. And Townley was the single most famous of many English collectors. So as often he portrays him in his library with an imaginary assembly of the entire collection in one room. He's shown with friends, a politician, a conservator, an antiquarian. And they're wearing Rococo costume. They're seated in Baroque armchairs. And the interior itself is in the new style and all of Townley's collection subsequently went to the British Museum. We also have a chance to see the portraits that were of some of these collectors and some of these important figures. Here's Thomas Merton's, the image of Thomas Howard, the second Earl of Arundel in Surrey. It's a painting of 1618 now in the portrait gallery. I know Mark Lighthouser showed you the portrait of his wife in front of the long gallery of paintings. I thought it would be nice to show you him in front of the long gallery, in this case of sculpture, with this opening at the end, so that you can see the long gallery. This is at upstairs on the mezzanine, and this is a false wall that was constructed and we have the long gallery, and through the doorway, you can just make out there's a painting, and it's the perfect painting to be in that doorway. Because here we come closer, it is the trompe l'oeil by Samuel Hoogstraten of a door that's open into another space, and so it seems to go on almost infinitely. Well, that brings me to the idea of the Dutch paintings, which were here in abundance as part of that collection, including Rembrandt and Vermeer and others. This painting would have been a natural painting for us to have in the recent exhibition of Vermeer and Masters of Genre, but we had already borrowed it twice, and so it was considered more appropriate to bring a different painting by Hoogstraten. I've shown it adjacent to the Clock Abbey state bed, this early 18th century state bed with silk hangings over the oak and pine, which was one of those most magnificent of the decorative arts that we've had a chance to show. And some of you may remember it was a standout in the show. In fact, it wasn't easy to select the works that came out of treasure houses because, as I mentioned, there were over 700. What was most memorable? I certainly think that the Grinling Gibbons limewood carving of dead game and fish from the 1680s attracted a great deal of attention. The antler settee, this stag's horn sofa with a serpentine front and antler branches and button seat with projecting upholstered corners and green wool. Notice in particular the six stag hoof feet uh, that are uh, part of the settee. Sir Edwin Landseer's Laying Down the Law, Trial by Jury of 1842 in the 19th century British painting section. And uh, this is a painting that wasn't far 
from the Sophie Anderson No Walk Today over on the left, showing off what Victorian painting was like at mid-century. And as opposed to that, I've juxtaposed John Singer Sargent's Earl of Dalhousie from 1900, a typical portrait of an English aristocrat at this time, Sargent managing to capture the stature, the personality, and even a small detail, this outfit generally went with a straw hat. And you can see if you look at his forehead, the line where it hasn't tanned because he's normally wearing that straw boater. And memorable at the end of the exhibition was this, the Nostel Dolls House, traditionally thought to have been designed by James Payne, but made by Thomas Chippendale. A George II painted doll's house in the form of a pedimented classical house surmounted by the Wynne family coat of arms consisting of nine rooms, each one very carefully detailed. It was one of the most memorable exhibitions, but we're still 30 years ago. Shortly thereafter, we had an exhibition of 75 paintings and 45 watercolors and pastels done by George O'Keefe for the centennial celebration of George O'Keefe. In her youth, O'Keefe had been particularly fascinated by the plant, the Jack in the Pulpit, and in 1930, she executed a series of six paintings of the common North American flowering plant when she was in at Lake George in New York. We're home to five of these six, and they became the center for this exhibition, the Jack and the Pulpits, number one through number six. And that led us to use many of the images that she had done. We collected them together of plants and flowers. And you can see that by looking here and looking over toward the right to see one of them. And here it is with these large magnified representations of flowers that O'Keefe had embarked upon in the 1920s became her most famous subjects along with the skull of cattle. And although such images had precedence in the photographs of Paul Strand and Edward Steichen, perhaps even Charles DeMuth, O'Keefe rendered them at an unprecedented scale and became most closely associated with flower imagery over 400,000 people came to see this show. We go afield, and I know Mark talked a little bit about this, but I want to mention a few of the different works in the show. This is from the 1988-89 exhibition of Japan, The Shaping of Daimyo Culture, 1185 to 1868. This exhibition included more than 450 objects that illustrated Japanese art and ritual during a 700-year period, a period of patronage by warrior aristocrats, the feudal barons, the daimyo. There were portraits, sculpture, armor, swords and saddles, scrolls and screens, sliding door panels, lacquer, ceramic, robes and masks, and tea utensils many officially designated in Japan as national treasures, important cultural properties, and important art objects. The fragility of many of these objects necessitated something we hadn't done often before. We rotated works through. So there were five different groups that were shown for four weeks each. So it was incumbent on visitors to come back if they wanted to see the show in all its complexity. There is a Japanese tea house that we erected, and we had Japanese tea ceremonies. 
there was a no theater and we presented no theater. There were various suits of armor that were used between the 15th and the 18th century. And you can see readily the inspiration by Lucas in his ideas about uh, the Star Wars trilogy when you look at these costumes. Here, for instance, is a suit of armor, Tose Gosuko, and this is a three-plate style helmet fitted with a broad peak, lacquered russet, and embossed with eyebrows and furrowed brow. The top of the helmet is covered with a short mane of brown donkey hair, and there are elaborate details all the way through the suit. Among the paintings, there were a number that were of multiple screens together. I picked out one for you, and these aren't easy to reproduce, so I've done it in a particular way. This is by uh, Tosu Mitsuyoshi, the Battle of Sekigahara. And this was a decisive battle fought in October of 1600 that preceded the establishment of the important Tokugawa shogunate. It, though it took three more years to uh, consolidate the power uh, for the Toyotomi clan and the daimyos, it is widely considered to be the uh, unofficial beginning of the Tokugawa, the last shogunate to control Japan. And so all of this different activity, you can see the eight-part screen that's here. And that note of important Asian art leads us actually to the consideration of an exhibition that brought together Western art, Asian art, the art of the ancient Americas, circa 1492, art in the age of exploration, the last of the major exhibitions that were done under the directorship of Carter Brown. It was an exhibition that was on the upper level, West Bridge, on the Northwest, on the North Bridge, it spread through the mezzanine and onto the terraces as well. There were more than 600 paintings and sculpture, drawings, maps, scientific instruments, and they were brought together from five separate continents. The exhibition was a survey of the world culture around 1492. And again, some works needed to be exhibited only in rotation. They were not shown for the duration of the exhibition because they were fragile and uh, particularly susceptible to exposure to light. The works were arranged in three great sections, Europe and the Mediterranean world, Portugal, Spain, Italy, other parts of Europe, West Africa, and the, the Islamic world, toward Cathay, Japan, Korea, China, and India, and the Americas, including Aztec, Inca, and other cultures from what are now the West Indies, the United States, Costa Rica, and Colombia. And this was an exhibition that in precisely three months drew 500,000 people. It was an exhibition which started on the upper level. Here you see a number of works and we're on the upper level bridge here. And among the single most important, almost astonishing array of artworks that were brought together. We start with this Aronimus Bosch, Temptation of St. Anthony, that comes from Lisbon, Lisbon, from the Gulbenkian collection. And it was one of the works 
thought to have formerly belonged to the Escorial. Basha's spiritual heroes were saints. Coming a little closer. And they endured both physical and mental torment, yet remained steadfast. And among Basha's favorites was St. Anthony, the subject of this triptych. And the triptych features physical punishment on the left wing, a black mass in the center, and the blandishments of food and sex on the right. St. Anthony's triumph over these trials is mirrored by those of other hermit saints and by the passion of Christ, whose arrest and carrying of the cross actually adorned the exterior of the altarpiece. And there is the central panel. In the African section, one of the highlights, quite memorable, was this bronze head of Queen India, a Benin bronze, a commemorative bronze head from medieval Benin that probably represents a particular figure, a powerful monarch during the early 16th century at the Benin court. I have it here juxtaposed with a quite tall intarsia lectern that came from Gubbio, from the Church of San Domenico, where it still is today. You can see the illusionistic intarsia inlay here at the top and down here on the cabinetry below. All of this done by using different woods to create the sense of three-dimensionality. And this is very much associated with the studiolo that's in the Metropolitan Museum in New York today, which originally came from Gubbio. The one that is in Urbino, in the Palazzo Ducale in Urbino, is still in situ. Uh, but we can see it here in the United States by going to the Metropolitan. There were major Renaissance masterpieces from Italy. The anonymous work that we see above of the building of a double palace that gives us a lot of information about how construction worked at the time. Or down below, the San Gallo copy of Michelangelo's cartoon for the Battle of Cascina. And you can see that here. It's a, a wonderful treat for us to have this work from the difficult to access Holcomb Hall in England, and it was great to have a chance to see it in person. It was close to these two works, which had to do with the human figure. Perhaps Leonardo's single most famous drawing on the left of Vitruvian Man, and on the right, Durer's study of perfect anatomy, male and female anatomy, that is of Adam and Eve, the only print that he ever signed fully, not just initial, but signed, dated, said he was from Nuremberg up here, in trying to ascertain the ideal proportions for uh, figures male and female. The Leonardo shows a man with an athletic physique inscribed within a circle and a square, and it illustrates the measurements for an ideal body that originally had been proposed by the Roman architect Vitruvius in the first century BC. So it was a nice juxtaposition that way. There were also the Admiral Carpet. The family of the Admirals of Castile had this woven for them in the middle part of the 15th century, some 20 odd feet high. And when you went over to the Asian section, this is a world map that was created in Korea, 
the Cagnido, which was created in 1402. And it's one of the oldest surviving world maps from Asia and much more accurate, including Indian, including Europe, than anything that could be found in Europe at this time. It is perhaps a little less geographically accurate than its Chinese cousin, most obviously in the depictions of rivers and small islands, but it does feature a number of very sophisticated and subtle elements. Now we can see various different aspects as we look across. They're probably meant to understand this uh, over here as Italy. But overall, we do get a, a full sense of India, of uh, Korea, of Japan, and of Europe. The section given over to the Americas included this colossal rattlesnake head that came from Mexico City, this basalt head amidst other works, and included this Aztec codex, the Codex Bologna, where it lives today in the library. There's a pre-Columbian Mesoamerican pictorial manuscript, and it's believed to derive from a specific area of Mexico not far from one of the striking pieces in the exhibition, this turquoise mask that's Mistec. It's wood faced with turquoise, shell, and mother of pearl. It is about 10 inches high, and it's in now the Museo Nazionale Prehistorico and Etnografico in Rome. It is an anthropomorphic face, adorned with a stepped nose ornament bordered by shells, which emerge from a zoomorphic mouth. The gums of both the upper and lower jaws are also delineated in fragments of red shell. But the most striking elements in the mask are two intertwined serpents that you see up on the forehead. With inlaid eyes, they face toward the back of the mask, framing it as though part of a headdress decoration. We had the opportunity back in 1993 to be a kind of pioneer. The Barnes Collection outside of Philadelphia, which had been founded, collected, developed by Dr. Albert Barnes, had never loaned paintings. And they were at this time in some uh, difficult straits. And so we negotiated with them to help to organize an exhibition, a traveling exhibition. And that exhibition would take place during necessary renovations. So we were the first venue for 80 French paintings from the Barnes Foundation in Marion, Pennsylvania. And that included important paintings by Renoir and Cezanne, Matisse, and Picasso. They'd all been collected by the wealthy chemist, Dr. Albert Barnes. And the loan exhibition, the first from the Barnes, was actually made possible by a court ruling. The foundation received permission to stage an international exhibition to pay for improvements to the gallery housing the collection. In a period of just over three months, over 500,000 people came to see it. And here is a view looking through past paintings by Cezanne and Renoir, looking back toward a painting by Seurat, one of the seven large paintings that Seurat completed before his untimely early death. 
The exhibition included important Impressionist masterpieces, such as the Renoir that you see here on the left from 1896. It's uh, the artist's family. An unusual work from the Barnes collection, the Monet studio boat over on the right. Barnes was not particularly fond of Monet. There are only just a few as opposed to the large number of Cezannes and the large number of Renoir. There were important post-Impressionist masterpieces, including the Van Gogh of Etienne Roulon, the postman. And uh, it's a nice match because, of course, we have the postman's baby here in the collection. And on the right, I specifically brought along uh, the Cezanne that was from 1889 of The Boy in the Red Vest, one of a series that he did. And we recently had two of them here on display, the one in the permanent collection. This had been on display, and so it wasn't chosen for the Cezanne portrait show, but I thought you might like to see it again. And then the great 1886-87 painting by Seurat of the models in the studio, in the studio with the Sunday afternoon on the island of the Grand Jatte scene in the background, one of the great neo-impressionist paintings that the Barnes Collection has in their collection. But this is the painting that people talked most about after the show. It's by Henri Rousseau, the customs official, douanier. And it's from 1901. It's called The Unpleasant Surprise. <laughs> the figure is not meant to be a specific woman, but a product of the artist's imagination. Instead of trying to record the look of real people and places, Rousseau often conjured up exotic settings, thick forests with figures frozen in mysterious situations. Here, damp strands of hair tell us that this woman probably returned from her swim, intending to get dressed. Notice the boots and the garment that are right behind her, only to find a hungry bear waiting for her. She stands in a gesture of calm surrender, revealing her palms, while a gun-toting hunter comes to her rescue. And perhaps it's been speculated Rousseau intended this as a fantasy of primordial innocence in conflict with modern technology. In any event, it is one of his larger and most delightful compositions. It was not far from this icon of modernity, Le Bonheur de Vivre, The Joy of Life, painting by Henri Matisse. And the Barnes Foundation has a lot of work by Matisse. Here, along with Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon, this is regarded as one of the pillars of early modernism. The monumental canvas was first exhibited at the Salon des Independents of 1906, where its strong colors and spatial distortions caused a public expression of protest and outrage. In the summer of 1996, we put on the exhibition of Olmec Art of Ancient Mexico. It was the first comprehensive show of Olmec Art considered to be the foundations of Mesoamerican art. It consisted of 120 Olmec objects from public and private collections, and it included 15 monumental works, among them this 13-ton colossal head from San Lorenzo that left Mexico for the first and only time for this exhibition. And there were also jade and serpentine figures and jade masks as well. 
And here you can see that San Lorenzo monumental head, one of 17 that had been discovered in Veracruz, thought to be portraits of great rulers. On the one hand, the monumentality and the presence of these large heads was stunning, but so was the careful work that was done on the smaller heads, including this jade mask that dated to about 400 years BCE with these very realistic expressions and then the incised marks on them as well. The next in our run of exhibitions, the Alexander Calder Show, which was two years later in the late spring and early summer of 1998. And this was an exhibition that marked the centennial of the sculptor's birth and was the first major retrospective of Calder's work in the United States since his death in 1976. And you will recall as you came into the building today, the great Calder mobile that defines the space of the East Building. There were 198 sculptures and five related paintings, a number of works of jewelry and, and toys, and 31 works on paper as well. So the Calder Circus, among the great treats, he would actually move the figures and engage in the performance. His small animals from early on, the hanging mobiles, wall pieces, stabiles, all of these, and of course, we're intimately connected to the Calder family. And you can see on the upper level in the Northwest Tower, continued association with the Calder family with both loans and with permanent collection. Art Nouveau, probably the first show of the new century, the great show of the new century, Art Nouveau, a comprehensive show of the international Art Nouveau style, which included paintings, works of sculpture, graphics and ceramics, glass and textiles, and furniture. It was divided into three parts, the World's Fair in Paris in 1900, which showed a collection of works exhibited there by European and American artists. Part two, the diverse sources inspiring the style. And part three, works associated with Paris, Brussels, Vienna, Glasgow, Munich, Turin, New York, and Chicago. And here we had the opportunity to show this piece subsequently donated to the National Gallery of one of the entrances to the metro stations designed by Hector Guimar. The reassembled ladies' luncheon room from Miss Cranston's Ingram Street tea rooms in Glasgow. Victor Horder and the inspiration from Brussels. Frank Lloyd Wright dining room with chairs from the Frederick Roby House. And those were major parts of the installation. Mark talked about them to a certain extent a few weeks ago. But there were also beautiful smaller decorative objects, such as the René Lalique dragonfly woman done in gold and enamel and diamonds as a large brooch. And I have it juxtaposed with the Gaillard walnut cabinet from 1900 that was in the Universal Exposition that year. And you can see the beautiful Art Nouveau lines, the decorative curves, and the imaginative way in which the furniture departed from more traditional, older styles. 
And there were a whole series of lithographs and screen prints as well, uh, and woodcuts, as you can see here. And looking around the acid thrower in the upper left by Eugène Grasset, from 1894, a lithograph, the Hokusai of the Falling Mist Waterfall at Mount Kurakami, that is over in the upper right-hand corner. In between them, the Paul Barons, the six-color woodcut of the kiss. And on either side, what were essentially advertising color lithographs, Will Bradley's Victor Bicycles over on the left, the American, and the French Henri Monnier, an ad for Raja Coffee over here on the right. And you can see how the Art Nouveau style permeated different cultures and different art forms throughout the latter part of the 19th century. The award for the most fun, however, would normally go to the exhibition of deception and illusion, five centuries of trompe l'oeil painting from 2002. And this was an exhibition of 116 paintings, sculptures, books, prints, drawings, and decorative arts. A mosaic explored artistic depictions that temporarily fool the eye with the appearance of reality. So this was the entrance to the exhibition. So visitors entered by walking over a facsimile of a Roman mosaic floor and passing by the lifelike sculpture by Dwayne Hansen of a security guard who wasn't paying any attention to them. <laughs> and he's standing by the elevator, and to the left was actually the entrance. <laughs> and then when you went in, you saw on the left the ghost clock by Wendell Castle. It's owned by the Renwick by the uh, Smithsonian American Art Museum. Even our administrators, when they first went into the show, asked when we were going to take the covering off of the clock. This is actually part of the sculpted wood. I'm showing you the Hoogstraten, which returned for this exhibition over here on the right. And then the Peel staircase piece next to the circular stairs. And we could never do this again. Those circular stairs don't exist any longer after the renovation. But you can see how beautifully the staircase mocked the actual staircase as you move from the mezzanine to the upper level. In one of the last rooms of the exhibition, there were a number of works by Lichtenstein, Magritte, and others. And there on the bench, there is the catalog, which in fact was wood. It sits upstairs in the design office today. People still attempt to pick it up and read it. And the woman who is standing close to it over here is another Dwayne Hansen. Her name is Kim. And people, again, would walk over and walk around her, thinking that she was there staring at the Magritte with the pipe. <laughs> it was great fun, and we were all very reticent to see it leave. Two of my favorite objects in the exhibition, the Walter Goodman of the print seller's window from the Memorial Art Gallery at the, in Rochester, the print seller's window in which are displayed photographs and books and ceramics and urns and wedgwood and statuary and a whole group of carte de visite hung on a line and then behind various different items, and a man, the print seller, apparently putting something in the window. And of course, all of this is flat. 
and all of this is painted to fool the eye. And it was one of the, I think, great accomplishments of 19th century American still life painting, the use of trompe l'oeil in this way. But it goes even further back. And so this is by Domenico Remp. This is from the late 17th century. It's from Florence, the Museum dell'Opificio della Pietra Dura. It's a cabinet of curiosities. Everything here is painted. The canvas itself is shaped. This is the shape of the canvas. This is actually flat. That's the shape of the canvas there. And then we see it as if paintings and bronzes are on the door and a print pinned up in an armillary sphere and a skull and some coral. And it looks like the glass is broken. And we see all of these objects and ribbons and all of this is meant to fool the eye. It's a painting that you wouldn't normally go to the museum in Florence, not far from the Academia in Florence, but it is well worthwhile. And so the opportunity to show it here in the context of other trompe paintings was really one of those almost unimaginable moments in the history of our collection showing exhibitions. A large show of Romare Bearden, 2003-2004, on the East Building's upper level. We had 131 works in this comprehensive retrospective of Romare Bearden's work, including paintings, drawings, watercolors, monotypes, collages, photostats, wood sculpture, and many of them represented places where Bearden had lived and worked. Bearden was an African-American artist. He worked with a lot of different media, cartoons and oils, as well as collage. And although he was born in North Carolina and educated in Pittsburgh, he had moved to New York City after high school and went on to graduate from NYU in the mid-1930s. His early work focused on unity and cooperation within the African-American community. He painted a little bit more abstractly in the 1950s, but his collage work was even more important, and he became part of the Harlem-based art group known as The Spiral, formed to discuss the responsibility of the African-American artists in the struggle for civil rights. And here you can see a selection of those works. And here, his three musicians, three folk musicians of 1967. It's in the museum in Virginia, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, but it was first shown in his exhibition at MoMA in 1971. So that it is both a spin on Picasso's musicians, but moving beyond that into a combination of folk art and collage, brilliantly put together into a really uh, a stunning design. This is one of the works where he shows rather large-scale figures. Quite often, the scenes, and this is a detail below of the image above, which is called the block. It's from the Met. It is his tribute to Harlem, a neighborhood in New York City that nurtured both the life and the work of the artist. In 1940, he established his first studio in Harlem in the same building as the artist Jacob Lawrence, and I think you can see some of Jacob Lawrence in his work as well, and the post-poet novelist Claude McKay. And during this period in 1940s, Bearden was active in the Harlem cultural community, 
as part of the 306 group and as a member of the Harlem Guild. Each of these six panels presents an aspect of life in Harlem. They depict neighboring institutions such as the evangelical church, the barbershop, and the corner grocery store. And while he took our artistic license in revealing the private moments of tenement life, as well as the exuberant humanity, he depicted what was a prototypical city block. You knew you weren't going to escape without Venice. <laughs> the exhibition of Venice Canaletto and his rivals in 2011 showed a, a very select group of works by Canaletto, 20 paintings by Canaletto with 34 paintings by his contemporaries, including Gaspar Venvitelli, Luca Carlovares, Michele Marieschi, Bernardo Bellotto, and Francesco Guardi. The exhibit opened with a 35-foot-long gondola that once belonged to the American painter Thomas Moran. It had been transported to Long Island where he trained a full-blooded Mohawk Indian to be a gondolier. It had been left on the library lawn after his death for many years, and then in 1950, it was sent to the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia, and we were able to borrow it from them. And so it was nice to open the exhibition with this actual 19th century gondola. And then you went into the first rooms, and instead of seeing the classic Canaletto represented in the collection, you saw some of the early work, which was much more atmospheric, much more, in many ways, trial and error than the later work done for British patrons. And so you got to see the 1720s Piazza San Marco before the pavement was put down. This is the new pavement is just being put down. And while the city looks a little ramshackle and a little stained, it is not so pristine as the later paintings were for the English Grand Manor tourist. One of his iconic early paintings, the image of the stonemason's yard, looking across, we see from next to the church of San Vidal, we look across at the church of the Caritas and its bell tower no longer there and the scuola of the Caritas. Right here is where the Academia Bridge goes across today. And so all of this is gone. The juxtaposition of bright areas of sunlight in the foreground, broad areas of shadow, light here and then shadow silhouetting these buildings in the distance is eerily similar to the Vermeer of the view of Delft that we had, and I suspect that Canaletto may have known that painting at one point in his career. We juxtaposed paintings that were by Canaletto, his view from the Dogana, this broad, distorted, exaggerated panorama of the Bacino of San Marco from the Customs House, and we juxtapose it with Michele Marieschi's response, looking from San Giorgio in this direction, and his exaggerated view of the skyline of Venice and all the different types of ships that are here. It is perhaps Marieschi that would have been Canaletto's greatest rival, and we have very few of his paintings here in the United States. He died quite young, but this exhibition showed off that he was 
very much a rival of Canaletto at an important moment in Canaletto's career. In turn, Canaletto's art derived from Luca Carlovaris and other view painters, as you can see from these. And his influence extends down to his nephew, Bernardo Bellotto. And when you get their paintings juxtaposed, you can see the clear difference between Bellotto's crisp handling of contours and details and the greater atmospheric quality of his uncle here in this now long gone ruin of the Tower of uh, Marghera. Only once do I pick, as we come toward our conclusion, two exhibitions that were up at the same time. And you can see that in this slide, as you look on the left where it says Albrecht Durer, and on the right where it says Diaghilev. The Durer exhibition, again, a kind of uh, personal favorite, was here over a period of three months in 2013, in the early part of 2013. He's long been considered one of the greatest of all German artists, combining the status held in Italian art by Michelangelo in the 16th century Raphael and Leonardo in our own day. His paintings were prized, but his most influential works were his drawings, engravings and woodcuts. And the finest collection of Durer drawings and watercolors, woodcuts, is in the Albertina in Vienna. So these are master drawings, watercolors, and prints from the Albertina. It includes some of the most stunning masterpieces, the great piece of turf, study of nature from around 1500, the chiaroscuro drawings, and self-portraits, and we combined the work from the Albertina with 27 of the National Gallery's related engravings and woodcuts. And so we reproduced out in front the great piece of turf. Inside the exhibition, early studies, the influence of Montaigne on his work, his careful studies of his own hand, the famous drawing of the praying hands next to the head that is a study for the same altarpiece and others. That self-portrait at the age of 13 done in silver point. And it was juxtaposed with this image that I showed you before of Adam and Eve, this all important image that in many ways becomes a self-portrait in the early part of his engraving career. Magnificent study of the accidents of nature, not idealized, but of this bit of turf, this bit of land. And they're the praying hands themselves. And as a set, we put together the three great masterwork engravings of 1512, 1513, 1514, and we can see Night, Death, and the Devil, and the image of Saint Jerome in his study, and the melancholia over here on the right, this image of artistic melancholy. In the center, one of the greatest engravings of all time, now 500 years old, but arguably never surpassed, the opportunity to show Saint Jerome hard at work, his lion resting in the foreground, the bottle-bottom glass windows 
and not only those glass windows, but the reflection of those glass windows here, and the softness of the pillows, as opposed to the hardness of the planks for the ceiling, or the gourd, or the softness of the fur of the lamb and the lion. And Diaghilev. The exhibition, one of the last exhibitions to take place in the East Building prior to the closing of the building for renovation, Diaghilev in the Ballet Russe, 1909 to 1929, with the subtitle, When Art Danced with Music. The Ballet Russe was the most innovative dance company of the 20th century and it propelled the performing arts to new heights through groundbreaking collaborations between artists, composers, choreographers, dancers, and fashion designers. It was founded by the Russian empresario Sergei Diaghilev in Paris in 1909, but the company combined Russian and Western traditions with a healthy delts of modernism to thrill and shock audiences with a powerful fusion of choreography, music, and design. The exhibition had 130 original costumes, set designs, paintings, sculpture, prints, and photographs, and it incorporated film clips in a way that we had not used generally before. Diaghilev's success recognized on his being able to identify and bring together artists such as Leon Box, Natalia Goncharova, Picasso, Matisse, Giorgio de Chirico, and many others, creating dynamic set designs and exquisitely decorated costumes, sharing a unified aesthetic. And they, in turn, brought most important artistic developments of the early 20th century to the ballet stage. Here, as you entered, you saw groups of costumes. There were a variety of different film loops as well. There was the magnificent image that was based on the Natalia Goncharova background backdrop for the Firebird. The costumes that had been designed by Picasso and de Chirico. So those are the 16 exhibitions I chose to highlight today. We have several more opening up in the coming weeks, most notably Rachel Wright Reed, just down the hall here, down into the concourse level, which will be, I think, the major exhibition in this building this autumn. I will return in two weeks to discuss the small French paintings from the bequest of Elsa Mellon Bruce, the daughter of Andrew Mellon, the founder of the National Gallery. And I will return to talk about the fact that it was not only one of the initial six shows in the East Building, but that it had a very long life going through various permutations until finally with the renovation of the building having disappeared. Thank you so much for coming today. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.